Our text this morning is Luke 6, 6 through 11. Luke chapter 6, 6 through 11. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why, what, or why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would apply this word to our hearts. God, I ask that uh, through the power of your spirit, you would humble proud hearts here this morning. God, if we knew how much pride filled this room in our hearts, if, if the light of your exposing glory shone in, Lord, we would see so much, and God, I ask that you would do your supernatural work, that you would change us. We know that just as you spoke light out of darkness, that you can create in us new hearts. God, I pray that you make us different God, for those of us who've struggled for years with a critical spirit, God, would you be merciful to begin to change that even this morning? God, that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that we all would know the hope of Christ and see his beauty. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, you get the second half of last week's sermon. Uh, but don't worry, it's not going to be 10 minutes long. I created a full sermon for you. I don't want to rip you off. Uh, so we're on the love of the Lord Christ, uh, part two. And uh, last week, we looked at verses one through five, uh, where the Pharisees uh, were making... Two major mistakes. Uh, 
when they encountered Jesus and his disciples as they were passing through the grain fields. Uh, the Pharisees were following them, kind of like vultures would follow prey. Following behind them, it would be kind of weird, but Jesus and his disciples are walking through, and they're seeing him pluck grain and rubbing it in their hands, and they're like, aha, they're working on the Sabbath. Look at that. They're they're harvesting grain. They're threshing it. They're preparing it. They're putting it in their mouth. How dare they uh, break the Sabbath? And we looked at uh, two major areas the Pharisees were erring in, two blind spots. They did not perceive who Jesus was. They didn't realize that they're critiquing the Lord of the Sabbath. So they're looking at what Jesus and his disciples were doing, and they have an interpretation through their extra man-made laws added to God's laws. They were interpreting what they were doing as breaking the law, that God hates what Jesus and his disciples were doing. But what they didn't realize is what Jesus told them is that he is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath law comes in the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of this commandment. I am God. One of the reasons you shouldn't be critiquing me is because I'm the Lord of the commandment. And I know the proper interpretation. And he knew that he was not uh, offending his father uh, by what they were doing. The second thing that they failed to see is uh, in perceiving the law of God. Remember, these are experts in the law of God. These are lawyers. Their whole life is to study the law of God and to teach it. But the problem is, is they weren't experts in the law of God so much as they were experts into their man-made rules. They attached to the laws of God. And so they missed the heart of the law. You see, the law of God pointed to a merciful, gracious God who is just. And they shouldn't have been surprised as they saw Jesus consistently being merciful to those who are sick and healing them and being merciful to sinners. And yet himself not denying the justice of God. They should have seen in their law that if God became man, he would look just like Jesus was. Uh, just to remind you, we looked at how God presented himself to Moses. Now, if God is going to meet Moses and let him see him, let him feel his presence, what is God going to say about himself? And I want you to test what God says about himself as to your view of God. Is it accurate? Here's how the Lord declares himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
I mean, what if God was abounding in steadfast love, but he wasn't faithful? You couldn't count on him, but he's faithful. And then once again, in case we missed it, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is how God self-discloses himself in this... uh in one sentence. Here's how he disclosed himself to Moses. But the Pharisees were blind to their sin, and they were blind to who God was. And the reality is, we as Christians struggle with the same things the Pharisees struggled with. Now, my prayer is, is that you're gaining victory, which means you're saved, and you're gaining victory over a Pharisaical type heart. In a group this big, there's some who are just Pharisees here, who literally do not see their sin. They, they don't see themselves clearly. They don't actually understand the law of God. In fact, they use the law of God as a weapon against people rather than love people. Now, my prayer is there's few here, and if that's you, my prayer is that today you'll repent, that God will give you sight, wisdom into your own heart because these are the most religious people in the world. Nobody gave more money to the church than the Pharisees. Nobody fasted more. They were all about God. They were all about God's Word, and yet they were blind to themselves. I just uh, read a definition of legalism this week uh, by a man named Matt Perman. Here's how he described legalism. Using the letter of the law for your own advantage while missing the spirit of the law. Using the letter of the law to your own advantage while missing the spirit of the law. That's the Pharisees. That's what they did, and that's what you and I can do. We can actually take the Word of God and use it to puff ourselves up and make ourselves very miserable people to other people. Rather than it turning into love, it can be an opportunity for pride as we're really detailed in following the Word of God and yet we miss the spirit of the law. I can do this and you can do this and my prayer is that God gives us grace to change. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21, by the way, we're going to have about 25 minutes of intro before we get to our text. Uh, so if you're just waiting to get going, uh, just be patient. But in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, and this is helpful because he zooms us forward to judgment day. He lets us know what it's going to be like 
And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, on that day, people are going to come and they're going to say, I believed in you, Christ. You were Lord. Not only were you Lord, Lord, Lord. Double emphasis. I was religious. I believed in you. And Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Basically, did we not go to church? Were we not religious? Did we not pray for people? And then I'll declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, you spent your whole life doing something, but I didn't know you. I don't know what that was you were doing, but you missed the law. You missed it. You missed the will of God for your life. I didn't know who you were. And then he goes on in the very next text. In verse 26, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was its fall. You want to know why the fall was great? It's because the person building the house thought they were building a big house and they thought it was going to stand. These are religious people. And yet they heard the words of Christ and yet they didn't do them. They didn't understand the will of God. They did all sorts of religious stuff and missed the heart of the law. So what I wanted to do is, is I was <laughs> prayed this week. I said, Lord, what can I do to help a group of people who probably knows they're somewhat prideful, maybe a little bit like the Pharisees, but really <laughs> don't see how much work needs to be done in their hearts. Are they really weeping over their pride? Are they begging God to change them, to make them different into new creations? Do they really want to change? Do they really think they can change? So I was trying to think of how to do that, and I couldn't come up with a better idea than this, and that is uh, introduce you to this book uh, written by Stuart Scott. He's a biblical counselor. He, he was uh, Scott, my uh, professor at seminary. And he wrote this book, From Pride to Humility. And in this book, he has 25 manifestations of pride. 25. I don't know if what you think pride is, but this helps you understand what pride is. And unfortunately... If you have eyes to see and you're not blind and you're not hard-hearted, you'll realize that many of these apply to you and apply to me. And so 
I recommend this book to you. I'm going to introduce you to 14 of the manifestations right now. But before you think, man, this is going to be devastating, I want to remind you of a truth that the New Testament teaches, and that's this. In James 4, 6, James writes, God opposes the proud. Now, just sometimes we've got to read the Bible slower. God, the one who spoke the universe into existence, opposes the proud. I don't know if you want to see pride, but you ought to. Because God opposes the proud heart, but gives grace to the humble. So, if you're thinking clearly... You ought to be saying, yes, we're going to go through the manifestations of pride this morning. I'm going to see more of it because I want grace and I don't want the opposition of God in my life. And then he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. James is saying, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Take a look. See it so that you can be humbled and broken so that God can exalt you up. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. With humility toward one another. For... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here he's saying, hey, proud person who's anxious all the time, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so he can lift you up and you can remember that he cares for you, that he's your God. And then he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. I think what he's saying right there is, right now, listen to Sam's sermon. Be watchful, humble yourselves, be ready. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know who he gets? Proud people. You know why? Because they don't draw near to God. They're so proud, they don't need him, they get away, and then he devours them up. He says, be, be watchful, be sober-minded. So all that just to get you ready to want to see pride in your life pharisaical type pride that devastates your relationships and hinders your walk with God. So I picked 14 
out of the 25. You're going to have to get the book to get the rest of them. And then he has 25 manifestations of humility. This book will humble you, but it won't break you because it'll lift up your Savior and show you the mercy of God. Um, So the first one, I'm just going to read them kind of rapid fire. Those who are pride are those who see are seeing yourselves as better than others. A proud person is usually on top looking down on others. He might compare others to himself and his strengths and overlook his weaknesses. He easily gets disgusted and has little tolerance for differences. Manifestation number two, anger. A proud person is often an angry person. One's anger can include outbursts of anger, withdrawing, pouting, or frustration. Another word for anger is moodiness. An angry look has been called silent murder. People are often afraid of you. They walk on eggshells around you. A person most often becomes angry because his rights or expectations are not being met. So anger can be a manifestation of pride. Third, having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, and abilities. Many proud people have a very wrong perception of themselves. They are a legend or a Cinderella in their own mind. But what they really need is a loving dose of reality. They need to hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4-7. What do you have that... God didn't give you. Fourth, perfectionism. Uh, People who strive for everything to be perfect do so for recognition. They may do it so they can feel good about themselves. Whatever the reason, the behavior is very self-serving and proud. The basic problem is making things that are less important more important. I remember him uh, talking about this, and he says, perfectionism. He says, people say I'm a perfectionist as as like it's an attribute. And he says our response should be, oh, that's sad. That's too bad. You take things that aren't that important and make them really important. And really at the heart of it, it's self-exaltation. Five, being discouraged, devastated, or angered by criticism. Proud people usually struggle a great deal with criticism. Such people cannot bear or are perpetually discouraged that they are not perfect or have weaknesses because they cannot accept who they really are. Uh, That one hurts when I hear that one because criticism does not uh, come easy for me. Uh, Six, being unteachable and unapproachable. Many proud individuals think they know it all and act as superior. They can't seem to learn anything from someone else. They respect no one and are stubborn and headstrong. By the way, there's verses attached to all these in case you're thinking, these can't be true. There's a lot of Proverbs attached to these. Scripture attached to every one of them. Seven, a lack of admitting when you're wrong. A proud person will make a great many excuses such as, I was tired or I was having a bad day. And I just want to say something to fathers here. 
I think it's hard sometimes for men to admit they're wrong. I know you can't be a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect dad. But you want to know what the best dads do? The best dads, when they're wrong, humble themselves, gather their children, and confess their sin and their need for Christ. That's a safe dad deliver out. One who is willing to admit when he's wrong. I just want you to think, parents, how often do you admit you're wrong to your children? Do you show them that you need God's grace? How often do you admit you're wrong to other people? I got tested on this one this morning. Uh, uh, Marjorie was uh, in the fridge this morning, and she's like, who put a bag of ice in the fridge? It's melting and making a mess. And then Scott says, who would put a bag of ice in the refrigerator? And I'm sitting here thinking, man, I bet you I did that Friday when I needed a little more ice, my iced coffee. And that's totally something I would do. But I thought about saying, I don't know, who would do something like that? But I had to admit that sometimes even at home I put the lari salt uh, in the fridge and all sorts of stuff, so... By the grace of God, on a morning I was preaching this sermon, I guess I was able to admit it. A lack of asking for forgiveness. Proud people are are rarely admit their sin or ask for forgiveness from others. They either cannot see their sin because they are blinded by their pride, or they just can't seem to humble themselves before someone else and ask for forgiveness. Resisting authority, this is number nine, resisting authority or being disrespectful. A proud person may detest being told what to do. We might say he or she has a submission problem. What he or she actually has, however, is a pride problem. It's simply displaying itself in a lack of submission. Number 10, being jealous or envious. Often when they do not enjoy the same benefits, proud people have a hard time being glad for others, successes or blessings. They are discontent when their lot is not as favorable as others. So as they see, as the Pharisees see Jesus getting all this attention, it just is driving them crazy. <laughs> and we're at the, the text we're going to look at today, a man who's had a crippled hand his whole life gets healed. And their response is fury and anger. What? That's what pride does. We can't rejoice with other people. We only think, poor me. How come I'm not this or that or getting attention? Uh, Number 11, being deceitful, pretending to be perfect, covering up sins, faults, and mistakes. Some proud people will do just about anything in order for others not to find out negative things about them. Number 12, using attention-getting tactics. Proud people often may try to draw attention to themselves through dress, bizarre behavior, being rebellious, always talking about their problems, etc. 13, Not having close relationships. Proud people often have no use for close relationships, thinking that the trouble outweighs the benefits. They may see themselves as so self-sufficient that they do not need other people. If they are into self-pity, they might 
be fearful and intimidated for intimacy and relationships. And 14, the last one we'll look at is a lack of compassion. A person who is proud is rarely concerned for others and their concerns. He cannot see beyond his own desires, and we definitely see this at work uh, in the Pharisees in, in these texts. So I don't know if you saw yourself in any of those. <laughs> if you did, praise God. You're not totally blind. Uh, and I'll just tell you one story about uh, that Stuart Scott said. Um, he was speaking at a conference, and a gentleman came up to him and said, Hey, are you the jerk that wrote that Pride and Humility book, the 25 Manifestations of Pride? And Stuart Scott said, yeah. He's like, yeah, my pastor made me take that test. I had 21 out of 25. And he said, really? How were you so blind to not see the other four? <laughs> and he's kind of joking, but he's kind of not. If you can't see yourself in all these, uh, then you, you really do need to ask God to give you a greater vision into who you are. So, I just want to quickly review what we went through last week, and then we'll uh, get to our text. Um, last week, I asked you two questions, and it's questions two and three in your notes today. The first question to ask is, do you see the need to be humbled? I hope by now you have. Second, do you pr profess Christ's lordship over all things. Here's the thing. If you don't see Jesus as Lord, then you'll be God of your own kingdom. You won't care what he says. You'll be doing your own thing. If you don't realize he has authority over the Sabbath, which means he's God, and he died for you and bought you with his blood, he purchased you, you're a servant of the king in his kingdom, but what the Pharisees didn't see is they didn't see Jesus as a king. They didn't see his authority. And if you and I are going to be honest, there's often that you and I think we're kings and queens of our own lives. And the reason why we get so angry in our relationships struggle is we're trying to make our kingdom go rather than waking up in the morning and saying, God, let me do whatever work you have for me in my kingdom. Here's my plan for the day. Here's what I'm going to do. You can interrupt it at any point. You can bring the most annoying person in the way of my day. But I'm a servant of the king. This is a divine appointment. They did not see Christ's authority. They did not see his lordship uh, over the Sabbath. And so my question for you is, do you? And thirdly, does love legitimize your profession? of Christ as Lord. You see, if you're really a Christian, there will be evidences of mercy, love, compassion that comes out of your life. Will it be perfect? No. We're all in a battle. Christians are in a battle. But does your life legitimize your profession? that you're a Christ follower? Or could you just be a religious 
follower like the Pharisees who look at the same Bible and yet miss the whole heart of what the law is. Uh, here's a few texts we looked at last week. Matthew 22, uh, 36. Jesus was asked, what's the, Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love God. Second is like it, love neighbor. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So listen to me. If all the law and the prophets funnel down to love God, love neighbor, then the spirit of the law is love God, love neighbor. In Romans 8, here's how Paul says it. Here's what he says to Christians. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Jesus knows that person. That person's been intimately changed by Christ. And then he says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Now, Jesus is the only one who fulfills the law perfectly, but for you as a Christian, as you love each other, you're fulfilling the spirit of the law of God. So much so that in Galatians, here's how, here, look how practical this gets. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 6 with me. Galatians 6, starting in verse 1. And he's talking about one brother helping another brother who's struggling with sin. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So get the picture. There's a brother who's trapped in sin. And another brother who's spiritual that's going to help him get untrapped, and he's told to do it with a gentle spirit, a spirit of gentleness. But then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, that can mean one of two things. One, it could mean if that person, let's say, is struggling with drugs, be careful that you don't be tempted to do drugs. But I think maybe that's not even what he's saying. I think maybe what he's saying is be careful so that you who are spiritual aren't tempted to think you're better than him and not treat him in a gentle way. Be, be careful. Now, why do I think that? Look at verse 2. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then he says, bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Jesus is king and you wake up as his servants and here's what his kingdom law says. Bear one another's burdens. What he doesn't say is you who are spiritual become proud and treat this person Wrongly, as though you're better than them as you're trying to help them with sin. Fulfill the law of Christ. 
Show grace and mercy to those around you. And then look, look how he finishes here. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I think that's what we're supposed to watch out for. Be careful when you're helping a brother in sin in case you think you're some big, awesome, spiritual person that doesn't need the grace of God and you become proud and now you become unloving. Now you take the Bible, the law of God, you go to the person in sin and actually you're making them feel like, hey, look, I'm the one who's good here and boy, that's bad what you're doing. I think that's what he's saying watch out for. Bear one another's burdens. Okay, today's text, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, because they're always dogging them, dogging him, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They're not here to learn from Christ. Uh, they have a critical spirit. They're looking for what's wrong with Christ. And just know that one of the rules in the Talmud, in, the, in, in their extra commandments that the Pharisees and teachers of the law have, is a decree that no one, whether, here's what MacArthur writes, no one, whether a physician a friend or a family member could treat a sick person on the Sabbath. To do so, they taught, would be to work, hence a violation of the Sabbath. The only two exceptions uh, they allowed were cases when a person might otherwise die before the Sabbath ended or a pregnant woman who gave birth on the Sabbath. Other than those two situations, showing compassion and mercy to a suffering person uh, was one who would blaspheme the law and be a lawbreaker. So just know, perfect scenario for the Pharisees. There's a guy with a withered hand. He's probably excited that Jesus is showing up. And they're here and they're like, yep, we're going to catch him. He's going to do it. It's not a life-threatening injury. Verse 8 says, but he, being Jesus, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come stand here. He brings them center stage. Come up here. Stand here. He rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? So this is a no-win situation for the Pharisees. Jesus often put them in situations like this. If they say you can do good on the Sabbath, well, then they can't catch him. That's why they're there. Then he can heal them. But yet, if they say, no, you can't do good on the Sabbath, then they have to admit that they're hard-hearted and they're evil at the core of who they are. They'd be shown to be hypocrites. So the Pharisees often with Jesus' questions have no response because he, as MacArthur puts it, puts them on a, a horn of a dilemma that they can't get out of. So there's no neutral. 
Can you do good on the Sabbath or can you do evil on the Sabbath? Here's how Mark says it, the, the parallel account. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. They don't know how to answer the question. Do you do good on the Sabbath or evil? And they remain silent. That is blind hardness of heart that angered Jesus Christ. Here's how Matthew says it. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So Jesus uses that illustration with him. He's like, you'll take your sheep out because that benefits you, but you don't give a rip about this man who has more value. By the way, that's a verse to let you know that humans are more valuable, according to Jesus, than animals. We have to remind people of that nowadays. But here's the scenario. Is it lawful to do good or harm, to save life or kill? Verse 10 says this, After looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, this ought to be, Praise God, our Messiah has shown up. The kingdom of God is at hand. Sickness is starting to be overcome. Praise God. This man who suffered isn't going to suffer. But verse 11 says, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, think about this. They both look at the law of God, Jesus and the Pharisees. They're both looking at the law. They're looking at the same book. They both declare they know God. And yet, Jesus restores life on the Sabbath. He does good, and they plot to murder Jesus on the Sabbath and do not rejoice with the man whose hand was healed. That's what it looks like to follow the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law. I talked about last week. You know, I may be what what's what's my knowledge compared to God's? You know, I said maybe 10% last week. I probably should have said 1%. 1%. How much mercy have I been shown? 100%. But you want to know what I'm an expert in? in what I know and what you don't. You want to know what I get excited about? My knowledge. How wicked is that? I'm not an expert in knowledge. I can teach you some things about God. I teach you the main thing, the gospel. I can change your life. But what I ought to be an expert in is mercy and grace and love. Jesus said, you want to know how people will know your mind? By your love. That's how they'll know. 
When you get punched in the face on the left side and you turn your cheek on the right side and you return blessing for curses, they curse you, you bless. That's supernatural, man. That can't happen apart from being a Jesus follower. So, I want to bring it all the way back to this. How did Jesus declare himself to Moses? Let me remind you. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children's children to the third and fourth generation. And a person should say, how can it be both? It, 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 it's got to be one or the other. He either forgives sin or he punishes sin. How can he say he's merciful and gracious and forgives sins, but he'll by no means clear the guilty? Those seem like conflicting statements. But when the one who comes who is glorious and mighty, the one who's worthy to be praised, Jesus Christ, when he comes, he solves the problem. Because Jesus goes to the cross for sinners. And on the cross, God takes your sin and my sin and puts it on him. And God says, I will not shuffle one sin under the rug. Every sin will be punished. And God looks at his son, God the Father, with the sin, our sins on him. And Isaiah 53, 11 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to punish him. He doesn't clear Iniquity. He doesn't just shuffle it under the rug. He finds guilty. And so the, his own perfect son who never sinned is on the cross, and God punishes him as though he's guilty so that he can look at you and I and say, that's how I can forgive you. That's how I can be gracious to you, show loving kindness to you, be slow to anger. So my question for you and everyone in this room is this. You're going to face God. You may know all about him and know all the right answers, but will Jesus say, I know him personally. He loves me and I love him. I put my spirit within him and he's fulfilling the law of God by loving people. There's those people and then there's those who either just say, I don't believe in God, or those who say, I believe in God, but have never been changed of the heart. They've never truly loved God. They never truly repented over their pride and their sin. And either your sin will be punished in the eternal God-man, Jesus' death will be your death, and his resurrection from the dead will be your resurrection, and you'll live forever with God in heaven, or you'll pay the only price that justice demands, and that is eternal life in hell because you've offended an eternal God. 
and God is just. So you'll be saved by the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, or you'll suffer for all eternity in your sin. But Jesus came for you and says, I love you. Know what my father's like. He's overflowing. He's abounding with steadfast love and mercy. And he's faithful to save. Come to him. See Jesus as Lord and be saved. Father, thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, you can make people totally different at a heart level. You make new creations out of critical, proud, self-protecting people. You can change. God, I pray that this week we would pray that you would search our hearts, that you would show us any way in us that doesn't please you. And that we would write those down and that we would beg for mercy that you would make us more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.